For more information on MAPS, please visit maps.org. Also, the Psychedelic Science 2017 conference will be held from April 19th through the 24th in Oakland, California. Visit maps.org for more information on that and to also get tickets. Welcome to the podcast, episode number three of the MAPS podcast, and this is Zach Leary, your host. All right, we're so happy that you are here, and we're steamrolling along, episode three already. And this week, we have Mac McKelland on the podcast. She is the author, she's a journalist, and she's the author of a piece in Rolling Stone magazine called The Psychedelic Miracle, How Some Doctors Are Risking Everything to Unleash the Healing Power of MDMA, Ayahuasca, and Other Hallucinogens. This is the first original episode that we're bringing to you. Uh, I mean, original in the sense that uh, this interview was recorded just for the podcast. The two previous episodes were archival material. We're going to continue to do both, of course, and find a nice healthy balance between archival stuff and original stuff as well as introduce some uh, sort of interesting alternative episode formats, updates from Rick Doblin and other uh, you know key heads within Maps about just their what's going on in the industry and kind of we'll see how how that shapes. Uh, but head over to Maps.org. You know, somebody reminded me recently that uh, some people may not be aware of all the work that Maps is doing on the ground. Head on over to Maps.org to learn about. Um, uh, you know, all of the research and all of the people on the ground and all the momentum that is currently happening in, in real time and the overall health of the, ego, of the ecosystem uh, and how MAPS is really, you know, the steam locomotive pushing that along and leading the charge. Uh, and for instance, you know, the phase two trials of MDMA for PTSD are just wrapping up and uh, the phase three trials are going to be starting uh, later this year. And that is such huge, huge news. So what that means is uh, phase through phase three, sorry, the clinical trials, which are, will start later this year, will be the final stage of research needed to make MDMA a legal medicine. You know, prescribed by your uh, by your therapist, your psychotherapist, and to do the work that uh, you guys think is necessary. And this is a huge, huge, huge step. Because it, it means that, uh, you know, so many of these therapists, these people who are out there who believe in the power and the effectiveness of this medicine can come out of the darkness, can come out of hiding, and can talk about this uh, freely and publish, you know, their findings freely without risk of, in some cases, going to jail or losing their medical license. And it's a really, really fascinating time uh, to be involved in this world. And Mac does an amazing job in her piece of illustrating that aspect of it. You know, many of these doctors who she talked to, who she refers to as Dr. X, are uh, are not who you think they are, you know. And they are risking, you know, their entire careers and their entire lives by, um, 
you know, by believing in the power of this medicine and the potential that it has to alter lives, you know, to alter the consciousness and, you know, the fragility that is the human experience. And Mac also comes from a perspective of uh, she has a personal relationship to this. You know, she's not just a journalist reporting on it because it was assigned to her. She went through a lot of this work herself uh, because of some really intense stuff that happened in her life, which she talks a lot about on the podcast and in the piece. So it's a great blend of journalism, personal experience, um, taking you to the through the rabbit hole of the American fabric and where all of this sits now in the year 2017. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and Mac McKelland. Mac, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, really great to have you. You are the first original episode uh, first, ori- I should say, original guest for the Maps podcast, and hooray! Yeah, we're happy to have you. It's it, 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 it's great. So the um, you know the intent of of the podcast really it's um, you know because of what of the the legacy and um, you know success that Maps has had and established over the years as being uh, you know one of the, the on the forefront of psychedelic research and uh, you know and all of its different implications within, uh, you know, all the, all the various uses and contexts. So that's the purpose of, of the podcast is to really, you know, to talk about the research and talk about the data and to talk about personal experiences. So, you know, you just, uh, published this, wrote this amazing, amazing article in Rolling Stone, which, um, you know, it's really making the rounds called the psychedelic miracle. Um, so yeah, just kind of set us up a little bit. How did you, how did you get to this piece? What was your what was the uh, the inspiration behind it? And just yeah, kind of let's start at the beginning. Well, my introduction to psychedelic therapy was years ago, totally independent of any conversation or even thinking about articles. I just happened to be referred to an underground psychedelic psychotherapist Mm. from another doctor when I went to a doctor's appointment in San Francisco. So it was not, it's not like I was doing research. It just kind of fell into my lap. And then I never ended up talking to that. And I never ended up calling that referral that I got and I moved and across the country. And then a couple years later, I got a different referral to another underground psychedelic psychotherapist from a different practitioner, a therapist, totally unrelated to the first. So it seems that, um, you know, probably as a lot of people who've (laughs) done psychedelics, like it seems like magic the way that it all came together. (laughs) Right. Um, So apparently I was destined to uh, try psychedelic psychotherapy. And as it turned out, I, I mean, I desperately needed it as well. I had a history of post-traumatic stress disorder. The second person who referred me, um, I went in to see because I had like a pretty serious episode with suicidal ideation. And I was, I was just, I was in terrible shape, frankly. Okay. Can, can you share maybe just if, if you, if you're comfortable sharing just a little bit about what, what kind of got, got you there? I mean, just PTSD stuff, you know, just, um, you know, a mixed adolescence and you talk about it in, in your, uh, 
in your piece a little bit, but what, what was going on? Well, at that, so I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and then subsequently major depressive disorder uh, in 2010. So I had a history of that related to um, work that I was doing. You know, I'm a journalist and I was immersed in a story about sexual violence and then was threatened on that same assignment. So mm. that was where that, that was what preceded my diagnosis. Um, I came home and fell apart, actually I fell apart while I was still there. But, um, and you know, I ended up writing a whole book about post-traumatic stress disorder because it seems like a thing, you know, you're raised to think it's a thing that like happens to veterans. So it didn't seem valid for me, but I ended up getting in super intensive treatment, which I was in for years, years and years and years. I, st I still go to treatment and I'd had, you know, the best sort of top shelf therapist that San Francisco had to offer, which in my opinion is pretty good quality care. And my <laughs> symptoms definitely got better and got much, much more managed, but I wasn't like done, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't healed. There was still a lot of residual a lot of residual symptomology. So and that was where it was coming from. Yeah. And, and when you sort of, uh, <laughs> you said you had two referrals, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Years apart by two different people. So that's, that's a sign. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's such an interesting thing to have happened twice because I, I, I think a lot of people, um, I mean, in, in my estimation anyway, and maybe you can, uh, confirm or deny from your research, but from the research you did for, for this article. But in my estimation, a lot of people who, you know, could benefit from some of these therapies, they don't, they don't get introduced to them, you know, because it, it's still, you know, we're, we've made a lot of progress in the last, you know, 20 years, there's no question about it, but it's still kind of operating in, you know, a fringe bubble of, of psychotherapy. Yeah. Well, I think that's by necessity. You know, I've had, since this article came out, I've had a slew of people who are emailing me and are like, can you please refer me to some of these, some of your sources, which of, of course I can't do. Like, I don't know who these people are. Mm. I have to protect my sources identity. You can't just hand out phone numbers yep. to people who you don't know. So you have to run into a person who knows a person who knows a person or who is a person so I think it definitely helped that I was in California, you know, when the first time I was referred, like I was in San Francisco. So oh, it was a place to be. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. My chances were higher than they would have been if I'd been, you know, in Kansas City for yes. sure. Yes. But, you know, the underground is is decently spread out. Like there are people in lots of states, not just in California. But I think the fact that I happened to be um, for that that definitely that helped. So I was lucky in a lot of ways, lucky yeah. or, or magic or both or, or, you know, whatever it is or, or both. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and in your, you are, you know, you start off in the piece by uh, talking about Dr. X and, you know, Dr. X is in the picture that, that you painted the visual that you get. I mean, that could be anywhere America, you know, yeah. that, that, that could be, you know, the back bay of, of San Francisco, but that could be Kansas city. It could be Mississippi. I mean, that is a, a very sort of, you know, white picket fence, all American, you know, pastoral that your pastoral image that you, that you're painting there. And, uh, 
I mean, is that the case? I mean, I, 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 is that what Dr. X, if you just met him on the street, was that, is that what you would think? Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, he's a Christian and he's from, you know, I won't say where he's from, but it's emphatically not California. You know, he's (laughs) from a very non-Californian place, (laughs) I will say. So, um, yeah, he, uh, he is kind of just, uh, not you, you know, he's not like a guy who is, was wearing like, I'm trying to think of like, like a very stereotypical, like burning man outfit or something. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. The, no, if you met the him, vest. yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm a doctor. Right. And like furry boots yeah, right. or something. Yeah. He, yeah. If you met him and you'd be like, Oh yeah, this guy's a doctor because he's a doctor. <laughs> okay. And I don't think that you would suspect. No, necessarily mm. that. No, you wouldn't be like, this guy's definitely doing acid on the weekends. Not that he is, but I mean, it's not, that's not the vibe that he gives off at all. And did you like with, with him, um, was there any, um, like, I don't know, any sort of juxtaposition or sort of like cognitive tension that he expressed between the treatment and him being a Christian or any of his, of his roots? Did he have, no, 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 he, no, he really doesn't like it because for him sort of the proof is in the pudding and he has seen such great transformation in his opinion, in his patients. And he actually told me that he was originally inspired to become a doctor by Jesus and the Bible and the stories of healing. So uh, not not to be grandiose, but yeah, so he, he believes in healing. And then when he saw, you know, he was a regular doctor for a long time and he still is. And he was, he's been just a doctor longer than he's been, uh, you know, psychedelic uh, practitioner. So he just, to, to him, the results are so striking, you know, and I can't totally speak for him, but definitely this yeah. is the, the, what he said to me was that the results were so striking that there was just no way that you like, there's no way that he could believe that the God and the religion that he believes in would not support this healing that he's providing to people who are really, really suffering. So, okay. That, that picture, that what you just said there and like the proof is in the pudding and the data, it's all, it's all in the data. And he can't believe that, you know, that a God would, would, would create, could create these tools if, if they were not, you know, prop, if they could not be used in, in such a, you know, a, an effective way. So what do you think? I mean, I know there's stigma and all the cliches and, you know, decades worth of, um, you know, the dark sides of the counterculture that create preconceived notions of, of what psychedelics are, but, um, or sorry, of what psychedelics can do, I should say. But, you know, within the medical community, so many doctors, I think, you know, are, you know, are interested in results. So you have a doctor like this, Dr. X, who's just, you know, the proof is in the pudding. But why aren't there more doctors who are who are stepping up to say, I mean, there are more and more. I know there there's you know, a lot of great institutions doing some great research. But why aren't there more doctors stepping up to say, look at this data? It can't be disputed. Well, I think that the people who are actually involved above ground is still a pretty small number, you yeah. know, the above ground research, like it's, there, there's a lot of it going on, but still, if you count the 
<clears throat> actual number of humans involved in that. It's it's not that many people. And those people are saying that. And there are people who, you know, when I was talking to Dr. Charles Grove, who um, does some of the research at UCLA, he was saying, listen, like years and years ago, I would go to conferences and I would be the guy saying, look at these results, <laughs> like look at this research. And people would think, you know, like whatever, eye roll or crazy. But now when he goes, the interest even among super mainstream groups is much higher. So from his vantage point, which is certainly, you know, much more informed than mine, there are, there's a lot of uh, catch on within, because the more of these studies that they publish, you know, the more people read them and the more even squares are getting, you know, who are doctors are getting um, interested in terms of people who are in the underground. I mean, they can't, they are the ones who have all this other information about all these amazing results, but they can't stand. Dr. X cannot like go on TV or write a paper to say yeah. like, he, here are these amazing results that I've seen in my opinion. And he, you know, could be arrested. So like there's the only, there's only a kind of a small number of people I feel like who have witnessed the results firsthand who can actually come out publicly about them because people who are practicing underground, they're taking huge amounts of risk as it is. Certainly they wouldn't want to, you know, make public what they were doing. Yeah. And, and it says here, you know, what uh, Rick Doblin said, people that are involved are risking their careers, their freedom in order to help others achieve a certain emotional freedom. And they disagree with prohibition. Rick Doblin said that and you quoted that in, in the article. So yeah, I mean, they're really, I mean, not only losing their license, but I mean, they could go to jail. Yeah, they could go to prison for sure. They could. Hmm. So it, it makes sense that they're, you know, and then they can't publish these results and they can't speak openly about what they've seen. Well, so let's, and let's just go back a little bit. And, uh, you know, we uh, took a left turn before you kind of shared your, your experience, you know, your initial experience when you were, you had these two referrals, you know, one in San Francisco and one somewhere else. But what was your first experience like in, in the therapeutic setting? Um, and I mean, had you done psychedelics recreationally before? I had done, uh, you know, ecstasy and we called it ecstasy and sure. it certainly was not pure MDMA, like in the nineties yeah. <laughs> when I was in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had done that whatever number of times. Um, and that will, and I'd done mushrooms around the same time or something. And then like one other time, but I'm not like, I don't even hardly smoke pot. I'm just not much of a recreational drug user. Yeah. Um, so I didn't come in as some sort of like, you know, heavy expert. I really, I, I came in out of, I mean, partly out of desperation and also just out of determination to get better. Like I had done, I had spent so much money. I mean, 10, literally tens of thousands, like worth of insurance. That wasn't all my money, you know, out of insurance and things on, like this. On psychotherapy. Yeah. 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 And I have really good therapists and I, for much of the last seven years, I've been in therapy like twice a week. You know, I go like I'm in treatment every three days and every day I'm not doing that. I'm in yoga or, the, you know, like this was a well attempted, like I, I'm from the Midwest. 
you know, like I got a hearty work ethic when I put my mind to something and like healing has been at least my part-time and at times my full-time job for much of the last like, you know, years, five years before I even got into this. So, so I, do, I wasn't. Yeah, so, so what, what, hap- so what happened? I mean, you came in with that, 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 that context and, and, you know, I think you're sort of, um, I mean, maybe what, what, you know, got you to the PTSD thing and, and it's all is your own and is unique, but you know, like so many of people of your generation, you know, they had maybe some ecstasy experience at some, you know, rave in the nineties, like, sure. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like we all did, you know, and some of it was God knows what it was, you know, it wasn't pure MDMA, but, um, you know, we survived, we're here to tell the tale. So, but you had some little inkling about what was going on, but so what was, you know, how did it unravel in, in the therapeutic sense? Like what, what were the initial indications for your own healing? Um, in the actual session? Yeah. Do you mean? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the sessions, you know, they're long, (laughs) like it's hours and hours. (laughs) So there's like five hours and it feels like, or it felt like to me that one in particular, the first one I did was with MDMA. I subsequently did others with ayahuasca, but which did not feel short, but the MDMA one felt very, very short and a lot happens. But in this journey, you know, they call it a journey and it does feel like you're taking a journey because you're lying there and just sort of going through, I mean, anything in your own life or even in people who are around you, like their lives, like my parents' lives, all of that was fair game to sort of walk through and sort through and deal with. And to me, as I write about in the piece, one of the key, very key insights from that particular session was that I, I had a, an experience in that story that I was working on the one about sexual violence where I was threatened in a room, like alone with this guy. And I had always assumed in all these years in therapy, I was like, well, clearly that was terrifying to me because I thought that I was going to be sexually assaulted. And then in, which totally makes sense. It just makes sense. And then in my journey, I realized why I sort of revisited that scene and it kind of was replaying itself over and over. And every time I did not get sexually assaulted, but I got choked out. And so like I, I was being strangled by this guy and I realized like all of a sudden it was such a huge insight. Like, Oh, I thought he was going to kill me, which is, uh, it's different. Like it, yeah. like not, it's not a contest that one is worse than the other, but I was not processing mortal fear or mortal danger or the way that my uh, system was holding that as, you know, like a fear of death at all because I, I couldn't see it. I think cause it was too scary. And that's why, you know, that's why people take psychedelics. That's why people give, that's why these doctors give people psychedelics so that they can look at things that are just too much for them to handle and to take on when they're sober. So for me, that was just one. And you know, like it was, it was a long journey. A million things happened, but that was one of the like standout major, major points. And that, I mean, that changed my life that will change the rest of the course of my life. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, what a, 
there must have been just like that 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 huge uh you know there are only a few times in life where you have like a before and an after right <laughs> you know where like so many things are 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 gradual you know or or, or they kind of happen to you gradually whether it's like a, a cultural influence or or whatever it is but you know there's only a few things in life that's really like before that happened and after that happened <laughs> you know so like there must have been a very distinct after like you, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there is, and even now, when I am talking to my therapist about it, like it, my whole life is structured to me, sort of as before. Certainly, my whole adult life is structured to me as before psychedelic therapy and after psychedelic therapy. And we we actually we refer to that divide because it's important. I mean the the way that I the way that I process and my perspective, my openness. It just everything is different. And so we, we like regularly refer and I don't want to, and I'm sure we've get into this, but I just want to say like right up front, I do not at all mean that like I had that session and I left and I was like, hooray. <laughs> and right. everything was easy. You know, there's an integration process and this was an ongoing for months and months and months and months. And much of it was extremely difficult, but it started. Yeah. There was a clear point where this thing started and like, that's the rest of my life versus everything that came before that. And I mean, you say something in the piece, um, uh, that you went, fleeing from the, uh, from a hotel in the rural darkness alone. And it, and it, this is you that you're talking about. Right. And you, and it says you, uh, kept ringing over and over again. And that message was get divorced. <laughs> yeah. I was freaking out. I yeah. freaked out after my journey. I mean, big, big time massively. And it, wow. it wasn't even just for that day. It was for, it was for months. I mean, months of sustained freak out. <laughs> like so, with, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's <laughs> yeah. talk a little bit about integration then. You yes, know, please. Ab- yeah, about like because I think that's such an important and it's such an important piece. And and um, you know, in my, you know, I I'm 43. I, I wasn't old enough to have lived through the 60s. But um, you know, I think a huge. A huge part of, I don't want to say what went wrong in the 60s, because overall I do feel like the 60s was a success, was a wonderful, you know, time for humanity and, and changing of the, of the cultural norms and the, the, the cultural guards and things like that. And no question about it. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I don't think uh, the country or, or our culture, or however you want to say it, was prepared for millions of people doing psychedelics <laughs> because that is a you know that's a very powerful thing to happen and and there was probably a lot of lack of uh, knowledge about integration about how to you know intelligently take the experience that you had and then integrate it into your own life in a very responsible adult way so and thus that didn't happen a lot of people kind of went nuts and psychedelics were used irresponsibly and so on and so forth and but so talk about integration a little bit. Like what are your what are your lessons in that? Not just from I mean, within your own experience, <laughs> but from all of the research. Well, I was not 
prepared was, I think one of my, I feel like integration is often left out of this conversation. Like you hear people talking about psychedelics. You don't hear people talking about integration. And for the record, the first doctor who referred me had said the word integration to me. I had no idea what she was talking about, but (laughs) she, she was like, you have to have a therapist of your own afterward who you can keep seeing, you know, because of integration. And I was like, okay. And then the therapist who I ended up seeing who administered the MDMA, she was like, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have to do integration. So we were setting up times to talk in the future. I think before I even, before the journey even happened. So like, yeah, like I was aware and had been told like, you'll need some follow up, but that doesn't begin to encompass for me what my experience was. And not everybody has anywhere near as you know brutal of a time as I did, but it is very tough for many people, if not most from what I've heard from people in the underground and um, even the above ground researchers, like it's, it's an intense, it's a really intense process. So yeah, you have this big, you have these big moments and you have these realizations, but that's not, you still have your same life and you have to figure out how those things fit in to the life that you already have. And you're also still like you continue, it doesn't end, you know, like the journey doesn't end when that session ends. And when you walk out the door, like you could still be having big realizations. And I get, I got, I'm very sensitive, um, to drugs actually. And I get pretty trancy. Like I can drop back sort of into a little bit of like a trancy state for like at least a week, if not two after I take psychedelics. (laughs) But even if you're not doing that, like, you know, there's still, there are other things arising. Like you, you blew something up, like, you know, so that will affect, Everything else, like you remember something from your childhood, which was, so my most recent round of integration was around, you know, the last few times I did ayahuasca, I uncovered um, these memories of child sex abuse, which I talk about in the piece. That, as a 36-year-old, you know, it's not just like that information and those pictures and those, those memories arise and you're like, Oh yeah, that I just needed to know that that's fine now. I mean, that changes so many things about what happened between the ages of five and 36 and how you have been living and how those things have impacted you. And then you also have to digest all the things that you saw, just like after my MDMA thing, just because I knew like, Oh, I thought that guy was going to murder me. That's not like end of story. I still have all this, you know, I still have to process this fear, this like, you know, murder fear, which is not easy work. So that's why people are always saying you need, you know, responsible practitioners are saying you need to be prepared for integration and you need to do integration. You cannot just walk out of this and everything's going to be fine. Like nobody says that nobody claims that, but I feel like, uh, I I feel like that, that piece of the conversation just gets lost when, you know, in, in media stories and in interviews somehow. Well, and there's kind of, uh, I mean, I don't think it's as, as, as much as a, as a misnomer now as, as it used to be, but you know, I remember in, in my teenage years following, um, the Grateful Dead around the country that, you know, psychedelics were kind of 
at some point kind of shifted into the category of being an escapist drug, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, they're not, uh, you know, LSD and psilocybin and, and now ayahuasca with the rise of popularity and that, you know, these are not escapist drugs. They're confrontational drugs. You know, they will take you to the deepest recesses of, you know, of your life, of your, of your childhood, of darkness, of things that, you know, I believe that their, you know, divinity speaks through them and shows you the things that you need to break through. You know, I think that's why they're, stru- they're structured that way. But uh, it's intense. I mean, you're really brave to do ayahuasca and to, and to look at that stuff. <laughs> well, I, well, I appreciate that. Um, it's not easy but I, No, no, it's not. And yeah. I have, you know, I talk to a lot of people. I mean, <laughs> once you embark upon a like a, an extended period of psychedelic therapy. I mean, there's like, basically this is the only thing that your friends, like people you see at like dinner parties and stuff will ask you about like ever again. Right. So <laughs> it's more interesting than being like, how was work today? So then I've noticed that when I'm talking about this and talk, about what, not, not even talking about how difficult integration was for me. And again, like I, I'm, this is only my experience. I'm not saying that it's as hard. And for some people it's harder. It just, it totally depends. But even just talking about what I saw, you know, in, in the journeys themselves, which in my personal opinion is the much easier part. Um, people are like, God, I don't want to do that at all. Like people, that's what most people say to me. And I, I get it. Like, I, I don't, I don't, feel that way at all. Like I feel very, I felt very strongly obviously about doing this. And I still feel very strongly about the fact that I have done it. And I do think that it would be, you know, extremely helpful to other people, but so many people are like, Oh my God, I could not be less interested in that. And I, I get it. (laughs) I get why they don't want to do it. And it's not for everybody. And even people who it is for, it's not always the right time, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's, and you just said something really, really important. And people who come to me and say, oh gosh, you know, I, I don't want, I don't want to go there. You know, I, you know, I don't want to, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I, I don't want to unlock that stuff. You know, I'm just not, I'm not ready for that. And I, I support them in that. You know, you, you don't want to go in with a, with a, you know, with conflict, you know, with a, your agenda being, uh, compromised, you know, you want to go in with a, an open heart and an open mind to whatever can be uncovered. If you're going in going, Oh shit, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared. I think problems can arise. And, and like you just said, and you say in your piece too, psychedelics aren't for everyone or at all foolproof. So yeah, I mean, what, so let's talk more, more about that. You know, where do you think problems arise for, for people who, are taking psychedelics, but perhaps shouldn't. Well, I, you know, just from what I've heard from doctors and from people in the underground who are, you know, more qualified to speak to this than I am. Um, you can, you can use psychedelics in a lot of different ways. I mean, you don't have to use them as medicine. Some people still legit just use them for a good time, (laughs) which is a totally different thing. Yes, it is. Um, It's such a different thing. And I think that if you don't, if you're, if there's something inside you telling you that you don't want to do it, you, then you really don't and you really shouldn't. But then there are also people that, 
approach these doctors who do think that they want to do it and the doctors just don't think they're ready. I mean, there are certain personality disorders that they think just aren't compatible. Um, and different practitioners have different viewpoints about this I've found. And there is no, you know, we're in this psychedelic research renaissance, right? Where people are getting back into doing tons of stuff, but there are like no rule books basically right now. And the ones that we have are still being heavily modified and, you know, nobody knows what all the answers are. So not everyone agrees on what people should and shouldn't and what, you know, like who should definitely not be doing it and who definitely should like that's, it's such a, such a judgment call, but you know, certainly it seems clear to me just that you didn't, you wouldn't want to without a professional or I wouldn't want to at this point without a professional undertake therapeutic, like medicinal psychedelic work without someone who really knew what they were doing and who I really trusted to hold that space and to hold the container in case something went wrong or even just, you know, to me, nothing really went wrong, but I still had such a hard time and I needed so much support to get through that. And if you don't have that, I mean, you can have a nervous breakdown. I mean, one of the guys I was interviewing in the piece who wanted me to call him Dr. Batman. So I did. He, (laughs) I didn't really get into this in the story because it wasn't super, it, it, it just, there was so much, you know, like you can't include everything, but he was saying that there are people who like, he's had a decent amount of experience with people who have like really sustained breakdowns because they don't get any integration. And there's no way that you would have guessed ahead of time. Like they didn't seem like they wouldn't be eligible candidates. So, I mean, again, a lot of stuff that we're talking about is true of like medicine period. Sure. It sounds so much more dramatic or dire. I feel like when you're saying it about psychedelics, but just because like there is all this stigma and there's all this history, but you could say what we're saying right now about like basically all pharmaceuticals, right? Yeah. Like you you don't know, like there are best practices. You don't really know what's going to happen to a specific person until they actually take them. You can miss something and they can have, you know, like reactions and all these sorts of things. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why some of the researchers are, are always stressing like medicine, 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 like think about this, like medicine, which is a thing that you need support and structure and professionals around to do and use correctly. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, you could take, I mean, what, whatever, Lipitor or what, what's the high cholesterol medicine, Lipitor, you know, and, you know, it, 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 just like you see in the small print and, and all of those advertising uh, advertisements in, in magazines or you hear on the radio and TV when they, you know, they, uh, you know, when they talk really, really fast through the, right. the small, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, right. it's, you could die. They say can. basically every time, you know, like May you could death. die. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, psychedelics are no different. I mean, it, it is medicine and certain, and, you know, and I think it's important and I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe you, you can update, you might know more about this than I do, but do you think there is becoming an agreed upon, uh, you know, between maps and what's going on at NYU and the Hefner Institute and UCLA and Dr. Grobe and everybody doing all these, all this different research is there kind of becoming, uh, 
an agreed upon standardized small print for, for these medications? Oh, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I mean, the guys who are doing the above ground research certainly have a list of things that they're screening out for. You know, there's those patients are so, so selectively screened. Um, I don't know what everything on the list is, but I know it's long. And even in the, in the maps, in the map trials as well for the, you know, MDMA for PTSD, they're doing the same thing. So everybody has a a long list of things that they won't take. And everyone also has a protocol, obviously at this point that they're following, you have to, to have an FDA study. Right. But when I was talking, for example, to, um, Jeffrey Gus at NYU, he was saying, yeah, we do it. Um, this particular way. And then we like, they have like Johns Hopkins has like a playlist, you know, like actually you can find it on YouTube. Like they have a playlist of the songs that they play while you're actually in the sessions. Like even the, the music so is cool. like, yeah, the music is specified. <laughs> so like, yeah, they do have like rules and the NYU, he was like, he was like, we do X number of, um, integration sessions. Do we do that because there is any evidence that X is the correct number? No. We picked that number. We think it sounds like a reasonable number. There's probably people who could do with more. (laughs) You know, like we're figuring this out. So everybody's sort of... That's so cool. I didn't know that about the music in John Hopkins. I have to find that playlist. I I have opinions on that. Right up on YouTube. (laughs) Right up on YouTube. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of classical, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Um, what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you didn't uh, go, and I didn't, actually didn't know this, but um, you didn't go into too much detail about it in the piece, but about, um, Harvard did a study um, about a sample of Mormons who used ecstasy. Um, what, what came of that? I actually did not know about that one. And, and what became of that? What was their intent? Were they trying to um, kind of... Uh, kind of look at divinity, you know, and, uh, and kind of experiences of the divine. Why did they choose Mormons? How did that come about? Just cause they were trying to control for other variables. So the oh, problem okay. with studying recreational ecstasy users is that they don't just take ecstasy. They like, you know, uh, it's never. Pot, they take, they drink, they're drinking, right, right. All this stuff. So they, they were basically like a control group, you know, that only had done, because everything else was banned at that time. By now, you know, the Mormons yeah. have also banned MDMA, but at that time they hadn't. So that was the only thing that they were allowed to do. And so they did. And so that was why they were using this group because they were like, wow, we have this, like, <laughs> this is exactly what we've been. That's what you want, you right. know, a group that's only doing the one thing and here they are. And so that's why, that's why they picked the Mormons. Oh, that's, that's that, that's great. I bet there there are a lot of subsets that would be a lot of cultures out there that could that could be really really good for. It. That's really funny. Um, yeah, and I'm just wondering if uh, I mean if the Mormons specifically, if they kind of if their view, you know, if if their perception on you know the seven golden plates from Joseph Smith, if all of that, if they had any kind of you know, new interpretations about that. <laughs> Sounds like you have a dissertation to write because yeah. I'm sure there's lots of really interesting information in there. So, uh, yeah, that, sorry, that was a tangent. I just, I, I meant to ask that earlier, but, um, so moving forward and, you know, you've written, you know, this piece and, you know, you know, all the different pl- uh, players and, uh, in, in the community. And of course your own personal experiences, where do you think, um, 
where do you think we are with this and where do you think we're going in the future? Um, I mean, certainly, um, you know, the rise of, you know, Trump America um, doesn't help. You know, I don't think it helps uh, the culture or sort of uh, an air of, um, you know, a permissive air of, 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 you know, institutionally funded research, at least from the government level. Um, but, you know, that aside, where, where do you think we're going? You, I mean, do you feel optimistic about, about psychedelics in, in the future and, and wh- what it could lead to? Well, I uh, personally, I feel like, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist. I didn't go into this, my journeys as a journalist. I went in as a human. I yeah. wrote this story as a journalist and a human and yeah. tried to be very clear about my particular situation and my biases you know, but what it comes down to in the end is that psychedelics saved my life. And I feel like it's really important. I feel like all the caveats and all the context is also extremely important and the limitations are super important, but I feel like psychedelic therapy is, is, is really important. And that's why these above ground researchers are investing so much time into, trying to get it approved for wider use. And when I talked to Jeffrey Gus at NYU, he was saying, I think, you know, yes, these researchers acknowledge like this administration, like nobody really knows what's going to happen. It's a total black box. We have no idea. Right. Um, we're still going forward for now. And we hope that we're not going to be slowed down or stopped. And if we are, then hopefully this will be a blip and then we'll move on and we'll keep doing it. But Jeffrey Gus was like, I feel like 10 to 15 years out, you'll be able to like we'll be able to prescribe psilocybin for therapeutic sessions, not just for people with specific conditions and indications, but even just for like personal well-being and spiritual wholeness and wellness and things like that. So that that was that was his estimate as a person who's like actively working. Yep toward that. And you know, obviously that maps has this goal for MDMA to be prescribed for PTSD by 2021. Right. So, I mean, I can't, you know, like who, who can predict the future? Nobody, obviously, but there are a lot of very smart people who are working very hard on this because they believe in it. And in my extremely biased personal opinion, I mean, I mean, not that there's not research that backs this up, but still I have a personal bias and having, having done it. And I I think that, I think they're right. Like this is going to be, if they can make it happen, it will be like a real, real game changer. Yeah. I mean, I, I, everything you're saying is, is all true and it's my own personal, uh, wish. And what, what I'd like to see is that, you know, the, the stigma around, psychedelics and the confusion around just the terminology and the semantics, you know, so often people, um, I mean, you know, just the, the great irony within the American war, war on drugs, I, sh- I should say the Western war on drugs is that we call it a war on drugs, but you can go to the liquor store and buy whiskey and go get an Oxycontin prescription if you're in pain. So we can't really say there's a war on drugs. There's kind of, 
you know, I mean, a lot of people used to say back in the day, my dad used to say it, there's a war on consciousness, you know, there's a war on the expansion of, of consciousness and there's a war on some drugs. But it's my wish and it's my intent that if psychedelics could just use the lose the stigma of just being like a drug, a street drug and become labeled a medicine um, you know, that's, that's where we start. And to me, that's also the road, um, into recreational use as well. You know, I don't think the road into recreational use is going to be the one that, um, you know, like alcohol or marijuana. I think it just, it needs to be labeled a medicine first. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not an activist, so it's not my job to, fight, you know, like the, the stigma of the terminology and stuff like that. At the same time, it is my job to inform. And that was definitely why I was motivated to write this piece because I I came into this with the same stigmas as anybody else. You could, if you looked at my transcripts with Rick Doblin, when I was interviewing him for this piece, I was like, is there, isn't it true though? The stuff they say about MDMA and it will like ruin your serotonin forever. And then you can never be happy again. I mean, is that really not true at all? You know, like I, and I had already done it like, and I did it because I had to, to live. Right. So that was like a chance that I was willing to take. But in this interview with him, you know, I was still asking that question and the, I mean, the, the drug war has been so, so, so successful in spreading oh misinformation is just yeah it's, it's outrageous i mean it's yeah, also I mean, it's, yeah it's not true i mean that's that's misinformation that fault that does fall like squarely into the category of things yeah of <laughs> that are my job yeah. yeah that's misinformation and so i think that and at this point you know knowing what i know personally and from a just a strict research point of view and having interviewed not just doctors, but other patients and heard other people like it, it breaks my heart, honestly, that when I talk to people who are also desperate for this treatment and they can't get it because they've done a million other things, they've done all the other things, like all possible other things that we have to offer up to this point to heal. And they're, you know, they're losing hope. And this could be, it's not that this is a cure all and that it would fix all their problems. It maybe it would work for them. Maybe it wouldn't, but it it works for a lot of people. And it, it really bums me out like that. They, that there isn't more access for people who really need it. Well, uh, your piece in in Rolling Stone did, um, I, I forgive my, my ignorance again, but did it also come out in print? It did. All right. Awesome. So it's out in, in, in Rolling Stone and it's online. It's called The Psychedelic Miracle. And uh, it's really just uh, if anybody listening just wants to kind of read a uh, get a great snapshot about uh, where psychedelic stands right now at this point in time. This is a great place to start. Thank you for writing the article. Mac, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. All right. Uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to visit maps.org and see you next week with another episode.